Section 18 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 18 appointed colonel of the twenty-first illinois personnel of the regiment general logan march to missouri movement against harris at florida missouri general pope in command stationed at mexico missouri while i was absent from the state capital on this occasion the president's second call for troops was issued this time it was for three hundred thousand men for three years or the war this brought into the united states service all the regiments then in the state service these had elected their officers from highest to lowest and were accepted with their organizations as they were except in two instances a chicago regiment the nineteenth infantry had elected a very young man to the colonelcy when it came to taking the field the regiment asked to have another appointed colonel and the one they had previously chosen made lieutenant colonel the twenty-first regiment of infantry mustered in by me at mattoon refused to go into the service with the colonel of their selection in any position while i was still absent governor yates appointed me colonel of this latter regiment a few days after i was in charge of it and in camp on the fair grounds near springfield my regiment was composed in large part of young men of as good social position as any in their section of the state it embraced the sons of farmers lawyers physicians politicians merchants bankers and ministers and some men of maturer years who had filled such positions themselves there were also men in it who could be led astray and the colonel elected by the votes of the regiment had proved to be fully capable of developing all there was in his men of recklessness it was said that he even went so far at times as to take the guard from their posts and go with them to the village nearby and make a night of it when there came a prospect of battle the regiment wanted to have some one else to lead them I found it very hard work for a few days to bring all the men into anything like subordination, but the great majority favored discipline, and by the application of a little regular army punishment, all were reduced to as good discipline as one could ask. The ten regiments, which had volunteered in the state service for thirty days, it will be remembered, had done so with a pledge to go into the national service if called upon within that time when they volunteered the government had only called for ninety days enlistments men were called now for three years or the war they felt 
that this change of period released them from the obligation of re-volunteering. When I was appointed colonel, the 21st Regiment was still in the state service. About the time they were to be mustered into the United States service, such of them as would go, two members of Congress from the state, McClernand and Logan, appeared at the Capitol, and I was introduced to them. I had never seen either of them before, but I had read a great deal about them, and particularly about Logan in the newspapers. Both were Democratic members of Congress, and Logan had been elected from the southern district of the state, where he had a majority of 18,000 over his Republican competitor. His district had been settled originally by people from the southern states, and at the breaking out of secession they sympathized with the South. At the first outbreak of war some of them joined the southern army. Many others were preparing to do so. Others rode over the country at night, denouncing the Union, and made it as necessary to guard railroad bridges over which national troops had to pass in southern Illinois, as it was in Kentucky or any of the border slave states. Logan's popularity in this district was unbounded. He knew almost enough of the people in it, by their Christian names, to form an ordinary congressional district. As he went in politics, so his district was sure to go. The Republican papers had been demanding that he should announce where he stood on the questions which at that time engrossed the whole of public thought. Some were very bitter in their denunciations of this silence. Logan was not a man to be coerced into an utterance by threats. He did, however, come out in a speech before the adjournment of the special session of Congress, which was convened by the President soon after his inauguration, and announced his undying loyalty and devotion to the Union. But I had not happened to see that speech, so that when I first met Logan, my impressions were those formed from reading denunciations of him. McClernand, on the other hand, had early taken strong grounds for the maintenance of the Union, and had been praised accordingly by the Republican papers. The gentlemen who presented these two members of Congress asked me if I would have any objections to their addressing my regiment. I hesitated a little before answering. It was but a few days before the time set for mustering into the United States service such of the men as were willing to volunteer for three years or the war. I had some doubt as to the effect a speech from Logan might have. But, as he was with McClernand, whose sentiments on the all-absorbing questions of the day were well known, I gave my consent. McClernand spoke first, and Logan followed in a speech which he has hardly equaled since for force and eloquence. It breathed a loyalty and devotion to the Union, which inspired my men to such a point that they would have volunteered to remain in the army as long as an enemy of the country continued to bear arms against it. They entered the United States service almost 
to a man. General Logan went to his part of the state and gave his attention to raising troops. The very men who at first made it necessary to guard the roads in southern Illinois became the defenders of the Union. Logan entered the service himself as colonel of a regiment and rapidly rose to the rank of major general. His district, which had promised at first to give much trouble to the government, filled every call made upon it for troops without resorting to the draft. There was no call made when there were not more volunteers than were asked for. That congressional district stands credited at the War Department today with furnishing more men for the Army than it was called on to supply. I remained in Springfield with my regiment until the 3rd of July when I was ordered to Quincy, Illinois. By that time the regiment was in a good state of discipline, and the officers and men were well up in the company drill. There was direct railroad communication between Springfield and Quincy, but I thought it would be good preparation for the troops to march there. We had no transportation for our camp and garrison equipage, so wagons were hired for the occasion, and on the 3rd of July we started. There was no hurry, but fair marches were made every day until the Illinois River was crossed. There I was overtaken by a dispatch saying that the destination of the regiment had been changed to Ironton, Missouri, and ordering me to halt where I was and await the arrival of a steamer which had been dispatched up the Illinois River to take the regiment to St. Louis. The boat, when it did come, grounded on a sandbar a few miles below where we were in camp. We remained there several days, waiting to have the boat get off the bar, but before this occurred news came that an Illinois regiment was surrounded by rebels at a point on the Hannibal and St. Joe Railroad some miles west of Palmyra in Missouri, and I was ordered to proceed with all dispatch to their relief. We took the cars and reached Quincy in a few hours. When I left Galena for the last time to take command of the 21st Regiment, I took with me my oldest son, Frederick D. Grant, then a lad of eleven years of age. On receiving the order to take rail for Quincy, I wrote to Mrs. Grant to relieve what I supposed would be her great anxiety for one so young going into danger that I would send Fred home from Quincy by river. I received a prompt letter in reply decidedly disapproving my proposition and urging that the lad should be allowed to accompany me. It came too late. Fred was already on his way up to Mississippi, bound for Dubuque, Iowa, from which place there was a railroad to Galena. My sensations as we approached what I supposed might be a field of battle were anything but agreeable. I had been in all the engagements in Mexico that it was possible for one person to be in, but not in command. If someone else had been colonel, and I had been lieutenant colonel, 
I do not think I would have felt any trepidation. Before we were prepared to cross the Mississippi River at Quincy, my anxiety was relieved, for the men of the besieged regiment came straggling into town. I am inclined to think both sides got frightened and ran away. I took my regiment to Palmyra and remained there for a few days until relieved by the 19th Illinois Infantry. From Palmyra I proceeded to Salt River, the railroad bridge over which had been destroyed by the enemy. Colonel John M. Palmer, at that time, commanded the 13th Illinois, which was acting as a guard to workmen who were engaged in rebuilding this bridge. Palmer was my senior, and commanded the two regiments as long as we remained together. The bridge was finished in about two weeks, and I received orders to move against Colonel Thomas Harris, who was said to be encamped at the little town of Florida, some twenty-five miles south of where we then were. At the time of which I now write, we had no transportation, and the country about Salt River was sparsely settled, so that it took some days to collect teams and drivers enough to move the camp and garrison equipage of a regiment nearly a thousand strong, together with a week's supply of provisions and some ammunition. While preparations for the move were going on, I felt quite comfortable, but when we got on the road and found every house deserted, I was anything but easy. In the twenty-five miles we had to march, we did not see a person, old or young, male or female, except two horsemen, who were on a road that crossed ours. As soon as they saw us, they decamped as fast as their horses could carry them. I kept my men in the ranks, and forbade their entering any of the deserted houses or taking anything from them. We halted at night on the road and proceeded the next morning at an early hour. Harris had been encamped in a creek bottom for the sake of being near water. The hills on either side of the creek extended to a considerable height, possibly more than a hundred feet. As we approached the brow of the hill, from which it was expected we could see Harris's camp and possibly find his men ready formed to meet us, my heart kept getting higher and higher until it felt to me as though it was in my throat. I would have given anything then to have been back in Illinois, but I had not the moral courage to halt and consider what to do. I kept right on. When we reached a point from which the valley below was in full view, I halted. The place where Harris had been encamped a few days before was still there, and the marks of a recent encampment were plainly visible, but the troops were gone. My heart resumed its place. It occurred to me at once that Harris had been as much afraid of me as I had been of him. This was a view of the question I had never taken before, but it was one I never forgot afterwards. From that event to the close of the war, I never experienced trepidation upon confronting an enemy, though I always felt more or less anxiety. I never forgot that he had as much reason to fear my forces as I had his. The lesson 
was valuable. Inquiries at the village of Florida divulged the fact that Colonel Harris, learning of my intended movement, while my transportation was being collected, took time by the forelock and left Florida before I had started from Salt River. He had increased the distance between us by forty miles. The next day I started back to my old camp at Salt River Bridge. The citizens, living on the line of our march, had returned to their houses after we passed, and finding everything in good order, nothing carried away, they were at their front doors ready to greet us now. They had evidently been led to believe that the national troops carried death and devastation with them wherever they went. In a short time after our return to Salt River Bridge, I was ordered with my regiment to the town of Mexico. General Pope was then commanding the district, embracing all of the state of Missouri between the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, with his headquarters in the village of Mexico. I was assigned to the command of a sub-district, embracing the troops in the immediate neighborhood, some three regiments of infantry and a section of artillery. There was one regiment encamped by the side of mine. I assumed command of the whole, and the first night sent the commander of the other regiment the parole and countersign. Not wishing to be outdone in courtesy, he immediately sent me the countersign for his regiment for the night. When he was informed that the countersign sent to him was for use with his regiment as well as mine, it was difficult to make him understand that this was not an unwarranted interference of one colonel over another. No doubt he attributed it for the time to the presumption of a graduate of West Point over a volunteer, pure and simple. But the question was soon settled, and we had no further trouble. My arrival in Mexico had been preceded by that of two or three regiments in which proper discipline had not been maintained, and the men had been in the habit of visiting houses without invitation, and helping themselves to food and drink, or demanding them from the occupants. They carried their muskets, while out of camp, and made every man they found take the oath of allegiance to the government. I at once published orders prohibiting the soldiers from going into private houses, unless invited by the inhabitants, and from appropriating private property to their own or to government uses. The people were no longer molested or made afraid. I received the most marked courtesy from the citizens of Mexico as long as I remained there. Up to this time my regiment had not been carried in the school of the soldier beyond the company drill, except that it had received some training on the march from Springfield to the Illinois River. There was now a good opportunity of exercising it, in the battalion drill. While I was at West Point, the tactics used in the army had been Scots, and the musket the flintlock. I had never looked at a copy of tactics from the time of my graduation. My standing in that branch of studies had been near the foot of the class. In the Mexican War in the summer of 1846, I had been appointed regimental quartermaster and commissary, 
and had not been at a battalion drill since. The arms had been changed since then, and Hardy's tactics had been adopted. I got a copy of tactics and studied one lesson, intending to confine the exercise of the first day to the commands I had thus learned. By pursuing this course from day to day, I thought I would soon get through the volume. We were encamped just outside of town on the common, among scattering suburban houses, with enclosed gardens, and when I got my regiment in line and rode to the front, I soon saw that if I attempted to follow the lesson I had studied, I would have to clear away some of the houses and garden fences to make room. I perceived at once, however, that Hardy's tactics, a mere translation from the French with Hardy's name attached, was nothing more than common sense, and the progress of the age applied to Scott's system. The commands were abbreviated, and the movement expedited. Under the old tactics, almost every change in the order of march was preceded by a halt, then came the change, and then the forward march. With the new tactics, all these changes could be made while in motion. I found no trouble in giving commands that would take my regiment where it wanted to go and carry it around all obstacles. I do not believe that the officers of the regiment ever discovered that I had never studied the tactics that I used. End of section 18. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at JOCCLEV.com.